God, thanks for your word. Uh, And for those of us today that we're singing about heaven, but we feel like very much rooted in earth and our stuff and our problems and our challenges and our loneliness and our disappointment, our tiredness, our hurts, our grief. God, I just pray that you would bring heaven to us a little bit today. Uh, Maybe this sermon isn't everything directly about what matters to us right now, but God, we would like uh, for you to be able to speak to us. Um, For wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. We just pray that your presence would be what we need today. And God, we believe that where your word is explained, your voice is heard. And so help us to hear you today. Um, We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we admire about like firefighters and police and EMTs and doctors and nurses and soldiers, what we admire about them is that they go running toward the stuff that we would shrink away from. They sprint toward danger. They sprint toward trouble. They sprint toward need. They go running to it and they don't just run toward it and like look. Like when I'm driving down the highway and there's an accident, I can't help but like what's going on there, you know? Um, Maybe I'm, is that weird? Do you not do that? Because that just made me feel like I I enjoy people's pain, which I don't. Um, They don't just run and look. They run and they get their hands dirty. They run and, and they do something about it. They have this compassionate courage for the things that we would rather shrink away from. And this compassionate courage is the virtue that lies at the heart of what it means to love the 330. Remember our question is, can we see the 330, which by the way, church, what is the 330? Our area code, therefore it's where we live, right? Not a Bible verse. Again, somebody this morning at the other campus, so what does this mean? And I'm like, guys, like, come on. Uh, (laughs) Loving the 330 means seeing the 330 as it is, its glories, its shames, its problems, its awesomeness, while also loving it at the very same time. And seeing it and then loving it requires us to move toward situations we would rather shrink away from, even though we might be tempted to say, that's not my problem. Whether it's addiction, homelessness, hopelessness, racism, sex trafficking, you name it, our temptation is to say, that's not my problem. It's a very American thing to say. I'll work hard. I'll do my thing. I will manage my little corner of the world. What happens out there, well, I'll vote for that, and I'll maybe give to a charity every once in a while. But the way of Jesus, those of us who call on the name of Jesus, means that we can no longer say, that's not my problem, and here's why. Because God saw you and I, he saw the world in the worst possible position it could be in, as a hot, hot mess. And he did not say, that's not my problem. He did not say, just work a little harder. He did not say, well, maybe if they, you know, fix the government. They did not say, uh, he did not say, he did not do any of those things. What he came is he, in Christ, came running toward the mess. In Christ, he came running toward the problem, just like these firefighters and these police. He did not shrink away from what we would. Instead, God moved toward it in the ministry of Jesus. And this is exactly how Jesus understands his own ministry in Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4 really closely at verses 18 and 19, but let me just give you a little context here. Remember, all of scripture is like one story, and then we just kind of get dropped into the middle of an episode, which is sometimes what's confusing about it. So Jesus um, is about 30 years old. He's beginning his public ministry. Jesus was about 33, 34 years old, only did public ministry, the stuff we know him for the last three years of his life. 
Uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 are the Christmas stories, right? A little town of Bethlehem, which, by the way, is the name of our Christmas series uh, coming at you in November. Um, he, he, Luke 1 and 2 are the Christmas story. Luke 3 is Jesus' baptism. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is sent into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tried. He comes out of the wilderness goes home to Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his boyhood home was Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue, and this is what happens in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Dan, only that part's really on the screen. So, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. We're lazy in the West. In, in Jewish tradition, you stand while scripture's being read, but I won't make you do that today. The scroll, he, he stood through the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and he began to speak to them, saying, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled in this very day, or in the English Standard Version, which I think is better. Today, this scripture has been, been, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah, written hundreds, thousands of years before him, but about him, opens it to what we would call Isaiah 61, which we'll look at later, and he says, these verses are about me. This text is about me and what I have come to do. What I have come to do is bring you good news of the Lord's favor. Listen, when Jesus showed up, he didn't come with bad news. He didn't come with judgment. He didn't give the world, come to give the world a talking to. He did not come to put us in our place. Jesus comes with good news. Jesus never seeks to put you in your place like you do to other people, vindictively, to show them who's boss. In fact, it's Best to say that Jesus never puts us in our place. He takes our place, puts us in his place. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange there. Jesus reads from this scroll about the good news of the Lord's favor and says, that's what I'm bringing you. Good news of the Lord's favor is an Old Testament term. If you knew the Bible and you were, and you were a Jewish person sitting there, something about this would itch and your ear, and the thing that would itch was the Old Testament law about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee and the way that God set up Israel's calendar was that every seventh year, nobody would work. Dude, like, you, it was kind of scary to like live in 4000 BC if you were a Jew, because like everybody was trying to get you, but hey, every seventh year, you were supposed to get a year off, right? Um, and God always promised that I would give you enough during the six years so you can rest during the seventh. They didn't really do that. But then the other thing was after seven sevens, which is 49 for those of us that are not good at math, um, after seven sevens on the 50th year, they were supposed to rest again. It was the year of Jubilee. If you think about that, by the way, Art and Pam pointed this out to me, two years off, right? Uh, and, and, and then what was happening during the year of Jubilee was if you were a slave, you were set free. If you had debt, it was canceled, um, if, and you didn't work, and you rested, and the land rested. The year of Jubilee was supposed to be good news for Israel. Why? Because they'd spent 400 years in slavery when God said, every seventh year you get the year off, and you get a bonus year every 50. Israel never honored the year of Jubilee. They could never bring themselves to, to in, in, take on the financial cost of setting slaves free. 
They could never trust that God would really provide enough crop during the sixth year so they would could rest on the seventh, much less that eighth year when, when it was the 50th year. They could never trust themselves to do that. But Jesus says, in me, in my ministry, the people of Jesus, we are constantly in the year of Jubilee. Why? Because in the gospel, we have been set free. In the gospel, our debt that we owed God for our unrighteousness is paid in Christ. We are set free to rest. Hebrews says, so let us enter into his rest. They never experienced this rest. They never experienced this. Let me just stop here and say, if you think God is mad at you, you're wrong. Because in Jesus, we now live under the umbrella of God's favor. The bucket of God's wrath is empty. You have God's favor. It is made available to you in Jesus. So maybe even if this week you've kind of screwed up some and you feel like God's pissed, he's not. Am I allowed to say pissed in church? It just happened. All right. But Jesus says this good news, this year of the Lord's favor, this good news that he's bringing is for particular people. He says it's good news to the poor, to the captive, to the blind, to those who are oppressed. When Jesus came, he said in Mark 10, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He had a particular kind of person in mind with his gospel. Not, not the powerful or well-connected, not the respectable or hardworking not the financially responsible or well-off, not the well-thought-of family man or the well-regarded housewife, not the dutifully religious or the particularly upright. That's not who Jesus was thinking about. Jesus was thinking about in his ministry and in his gospel the people that your mom told you not to hang out with. People that Luke calls notorious sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. A key question for us in looking at Luke chapter 4 is we want to love the 330 Loving the 330 means identifying who are the poor, who are the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Our minds immediately go to the addicted, to hopeless, to the boy or girl trapped in sex trafficking, to kids who aren't provided enough food every night. Um, at Grace Campus, which is kind of in the city, we're a multi-campus church if you don't know that. We have a location downtown on the northwest side and a location here. Every weekly ministry we do, we provide dinner, like on the weeknight. Why? Because at Vacation Bible School this year, like a girl that was like this big, pounded back three huge plates of mac and cheese like she hadn't eaten all day. Not on our watch, right? Knowing the poor and the blind and the captive and the oppressed among us is key to following after Jesus because these are the kind of people Jesus cared about and these are the kind of people that flocked to Jesus. The monster under the bed of every church is this. If our work does not attract the same kind of people that we're attracted to Jesus, are we doing the same kind of work that Jesus did? If our work does not attract the same kind of people that were attracted to Jesus, are we doing the same kind of work as Jesus did? As disciples of Jesus, as people who follow him, we have four commitments. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, and to produce what Jesus produced. The question is, if Jesus produced a movement of tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and addicts, are we the same or are we not? Which ultimately leads to another question. Jesus has this heart for those who aren't, don't yet know. He has the heart for the oppressed and the broken. So what about the powerful? What about the well-connected, the respectable, the hardworking, the financially responsible, the well-off? What about the well-thought-of family man, the well-regarded housewife? What about the dutifully religious? What about the particularly upright? What about me? Guys, I was raised in Cortland in a fairly good home. There was always food on the table. 
I was afforded opportunity to go to college, get a master's degree. I'm getting another master's degree now for free. I mean, I am the recipient of opportunity that many people don't have. So does that, that leads to some questions. One, if Jesus cares about the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the, the captive, and I don't feel like I am those people, what about me? Is Jesus kind of creating some sort of two-tier class system where here we are like white, upwardly mobile people uh, who live five minutes from a city where it is not white and upwardly mobile? What are we supposed to do with that? Are there two classes of Christians? What goes on? Somebody was shaking their head, no, they're right. Listen, here's the problem. When we read Luke 4, we're tempted to think that the gospel is for those kinds of people but we find the same Jesus that reached for the prostitute and the tax collector and the notorious sinner is the same Jesus who reaches for me, which might indicate that I'm those kind of people, which might indicate that I am blind and oppressed and poor. Because when I really get a hold of your pastor, when you really get a hold of my heart, I come to realize I'm just as poor and just as captive, just as blind and just as oppressed as any notorious sinner. In the eyes of Jesus and in his grace, there's no difference between your pastor and some single mom who pimped herself out every, all night last night so that she could buy a hit and get her kids some McDonald's for breakfast after they slept in the car. There's no difference. The gospel is always bad news before it's good news. It's always bad news before it's good news. And the bad news is this, all my righteous deeds are as filthy rags. When I come to Jesus, I have to repent not only of the bad things I've done, I have to repent of the good things that I've done, the good things that I've done in the name of righteousness and goodness and doing what my parents taught me and being moral and an upright member of society. I have to repent of those things because I wasn't actually doing them because it was the right thing to do or because it was moral or because of what my parents taught me. I was doing them because it made me comfortable. It gave me protection. I have to repent because it was about my advancement and my notoriety and my self-righteousness. In the gospel of Jesus, this favor that God extends to us, it's not just for those kinds of people, or maybe it is, but the truth is we are all those kinds of people. We are all of us those kinds of people. We are all notorious sinners who are the objects, not of God's wrath, but of God's good news. This idea of compassionate courage flows from all of this. Compassion is literally in Latin to suffer with or to suffer alongside of. And Jesus is compassion incarnate. He didn't just feel nice toward people that were hurting. Nice, by the way, is a word never used in the Bible. He didn't just throw things at them. He suffered with them. He entered and became every way like they are. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor. Jesus says at one point, foxes have holes to lay their heads, but I don't. Jesus was effectively homeless. When we assume some moral authority over those who are in great need in the 330, when we assume moral authority over the addict, over the drunk, over the single mom who's shooting up, when we do these things, when we assume moral authority, we don't love them. We condescend to them. We pat them on the head. We give them, some of, we give them a little extra money at Christmas because we honestly feel a little guilty by how much is under our tree. But the difference 
between feeling bad and having compassion is when we come to grips with the fact that their heart and my heart are the same. Compassion begins when I see myself just as poor and just as captive as the next person. I, I, I see that when I come to understand that God reaches for me in grace. When we see people with the eyes of our own addictions, which may be to comfort or to being right or to talking badly about people, when we, when we see ourselves with our own addictions and our own captivity, we can love people. When we see our own poverty of spirit, when we see how even though my bank account may say one thing, I'm really poor in others, that's when we begin to love. And Jesus tries to level the playing field with this parable in Luke 18, which is actually going to be on the screen. This will mess with you. And if you get mad, Jesus said it, not me. Um, Two men, Jesus tells a story, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Exchange, uh, one, a person who is really right and does good things all the time and is super generous, da, 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 and the other a tax collector, somebody who just, just sobered up, and up enough to stumble in. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He like sees the other guy in church and judges him while he's praying. I think I'm not like them because I fast twice a week and I give tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, one guy's sitting in the front row, the one is like, I'm gonna hang out on the other side of that glass because I just don't know if I'm good enough to get in here. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We play this mental game. We say, I'm not like those people. Thanks, God, that I'm not like those people, when in the reality, we are all those people. What stops us from loving the 330 with compassion is that too many of us have an attitude like this Pharisee. And when you peel back the layers of our political correctness, our niceness, which again, is a word that is never used in scripture. When you peel back our better judgment, we find that what stops us from loving the 330 is we're like that Pharisee. We think we're better than people. Jesus levels that playing field. What sets us free to love with compassion, the 330, is when we care, what sets us free to care about mental health and addiction and racism and poverty is coming to the realization that we're no different than the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed. Our addiction to comfort or whatever it is keeps us just as captive as everybody else. That's how compassion begins when we see ourselves as similar, not as different. But compassion has to be paired with courage for the people of Jesus. We can't just have feelings and then have our feelings and keep going. It's tied to action. We're called to compassionate courage to run toward the brokenness. True broken, we, we're called to true brokenheartedness over what breaks God's heart. And when we have that compassion and courage, we do something. It's what changes. And courage, courage comes from the realization, courage comes from the realization that our gospel, which is good news, really is good news. The degree to which you have passion for the things of God is the degree to which you believe the gospel really is good news for you. I don't know if you've ever heard of the legend of Philippides, but there's a name to name your children, Philippides. Like what is that for sure, like Philip, Didis? I don't know, right? The legend, this is the legend of Marathon, where we get the word Marathon from. So the legend is that the Battle of Marathon, uh, the Battle of Marathon a man was, Philippides was sent 
back to Athens, which was about 25 miles away, to let them know that they had won. And so, and so Philippides, Didi, runs 25 miles without stopping. Didi runs 25 miles without stopping. I'm just gonna keep saying because it's making me laugh. Do you know what I'm saying? He runs 25 miles without stopping. Why? Not because he was like, guys, pumpkin spice lattes are next weekend, right? <laughs> Although that's like, I'd run like a mile for that. Like I, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd run until that. Um, no, he ran 25 miles without stopping because the news was that good. He ran 25 miles without stopping. I mean, he had the courage and the strength to run without stopping for 25 miles because the news was that good. And guys, our news is way better than, by the way, the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon. Our news is Christ is risen, death is defeated, sin is no more, the ca- liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. That is good news. I mean, the level to which you and I have come to grasp the, the depths of the good news of the gospel is the level to which we will lay down our lives. And you see two different kinds of people who have followed Jesus for their whole lives, two different kinds of people in their 80s. The kind of people who have decided that they've done enough, so they're going to go down to Florida and collect seashells for the rest of their life. And those who, and those who will spend every day of their retirement making sure the kingdom can come because they've realized heaven's a really nice long rest and I've only got a few more years to make a difference. It's the, le- the depth to which the gospel is good news to them. And, and this is ultimately what this sermon is about. Loving the 330 is about with compassionate courage, with compassionate courage, taking the gospel to the places where it is both good and news. Where it is both good and news. Hear me on this. I've been in church my whole life. The gospel really isn't news anymore. The gospel really isn't, I sing it, I pray it, I rejoice in it, but it's not like I've never heard that before. Some of you are like the switch is just flipping. And so this is like the best thing I have ever had happen to me. It's still news and it's good news. The gospel, we are called to take the gospel with compassionate courage to the places where it is both good and news. So Kyle, why are we going to go on September 9th to a public event celebrating recovery? Because to the people that gather at that, who are living under the shadow of their past of addiction, the gospel is good news to them. It is good news that their past is not as important to them as their present. It is good news that whatever addiction plagued them, they can be set free from because that's what the year of the Lord's favor means. It means we can be set free. It is good news there. It is good news when we go to McGuffey and, we, and we're just there like, like banging on a noisy wall and showing kids how to draw in sand. Why is it good news? Because they've been forgotten and they have nobody in their life that just shows up and does stuff for them with no strings attached. That's good news. It is good news to single moms who are like working like crazy to provide for their families and feel so alone that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago. Guy said, uh, from Bethel, said, um, that the biggest issue, I pointed at Aaron because he went there and he's looking at me like, don't do that. Um, everybody's like, make this church bigger so I can't be called out. Like that's really, you know what I mean? Um, he said the biggest issue facing our generation is not anything you would fill in the blank in, it's fatherlessness. It's a father issue. Even when the people with dads have weird relationship with their dads. Guys, in the gospel, it is good and news that Jesus makes available to us the everlasting father whose affection is for us. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we go to the places where the gospel is good and news, and it transforms us. Jesus, anytime you see Jesus quoting the Old Testament, anytime the New Testament quotes the Old, it's fun to look at why they did that. So if you have a Bible, flip to Isaiah 61. 
Like grab, grab a chunk of Bible and just see if you get to Isaiah, you know, um, or go to the table of contents while nobody's looking so nobody knows, like I don't know the Bible like everybody else. Hurry. No shame. My grandpa my whole life had a real thick Bible that had these like tabs cut into it, right? And it had a little thing so it, it would like have the abbreviations for the book so you could kind of flip there. You know what I'm saying? You know what, I, I, I'm always like, cheater, right? I can teach you a song about the Bible, but I won't do that now. No, be where you're at. Isaiah 61. Isaiah, writing thousands of years before Jesus, sees Jesus coming and starts writing about him and says this in Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Reading prophecy is hard because is Isaiah talking about himself? He's using the first person but talking about somebody else. And he's talking about Jesus. Verse two, he has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. Let's have a sermon sometime about how God's wrath is really a form of God's love. But not today. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. People say the Bible's boring. That is like a beautiful sentence. They, verse four, they will rebuild ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them though they have been deserted for many generations. It sounds a little bit like Warren, doesn't it? Like you drive downtown and there's that sign that's supposed to say like W-A-R-R-E-N and for a long time it was W-A-R-R-N, right? And you drive by and there's like these windows taped over and these houses running down and all this kind of stuff and yet Jesus uses this text to kind of describe his ministry and says, look, you're going to hear this good news. It's going to transform you. It's going to give you beauty for ashes. There'll be blessing instead of mourning. You will be like oaks of righteousness. And because of that inward transformation, you will seek the renewal of a city. Loving the 330 is a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual practice. Caring about our community, being a common good Christian is a spiritual practice tied to the deepest levels of our faith for this one reason. I, which I'm going to steal. We had a team that went to Cleveland this weekend uh, to Nehemiah Mission Center. Uh, there were about nine of them uh, that went. Uh, points for being here in worship this morning after working all weekend, guys. Um, crowns in heaven and high fives. And um, uh, so Steph and I drove out to kind of just be with them and pray with them before uh, they got to work. Some stuff kind of called us back down here. And we were looking at Isaiah 61 and I said, so why is there this connection? Why is there a connection between good news and experiencing the Lord's favor and the transformation of a city? Like why are those, in God's eyes, why are those connected? And Lindsay said, because when you walk into favor, you walk into purpose. And I was like, bam, girl, drop that mic. When you walk into favor, you walk into purpose. Listen, Jesus did not interrupt your life with, his, with your life with his love and grace so that like, you could kind of like share some stuff on Instagram and come to church because you think the preacher's really attractive and, um, and kind of just keep living your life. 
The agenda is a total transformation that leads to the transformations of others. There is no option in the gospel for you to say, it's not really my problem what's going on in my city. I'll drive you know, on the nice roads. I'll stay in the nice parts. I won't care about this, this, or this. What Jesus calls us to do is be like him in every way, which ultimately means laying down everything we are for the sake of our city. My, my dream for our church is if we were to close tomorrow, people would be like, what, what, that, that church had a really long name and met in a place called Otterbox. Um, what, what was it? No, the dream is look at, look at what our city has lost because this place is no longer here. Because that was a group of people that laid down their lives for us because they were so convinced of the news that they had heard because they, they were so clear about their own brokenness that they could not help but look on the brokenness of others and just break down and care for them. They, they couldn't help but take this news and go run into schools and run into events and be everywhere in our community to take care of things. Guys, this is the vision that Jesus has for us. Loving the 330, when you walk into favor, when you walk into God's favor, you've walked into purpose.